there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Happy Friday, people. That's if you're listening to this on a Friday, uh, the day I released it. It's a little bit different. I normally go with a Sunday or Monday, but this time I'm going with a Friday for this episode of the 1% Better Podcast. Why so soon with this one? It was just such a good episode, I couldn't wait to get it out there and had such fun talking to Anna, I really wanted to share it sooner rather than later. So Anna Dolce is a former Miss Georgia, she won that twice. She is now a business strategist and life coach and she has so many other strings to her bow as you will hear during our conversation. It went for two hours, way longer than both of us planned but we got into so many good conversational topics uh, during it that we just kept going as usual i brought it down the route of coaching core values purpose we talked about outcomes and that was all probably in the second half of the show for the first 45 minutes or so we talked about anna's remarkable story i guess growing up in georgia in the soviet union uh, becoming uh, Miss Georgia, taking massive gambles by moving to the US without any English and with $40 in her pocket. She goes into details on that. So much more. Uh, I won't go into all the details. I'll leave that for your uh, ears pleasure during the next two hours or however long it takes you to get through the episode. I'd just like to say thanks so much to Anna and if anyone wants to follow up with Anna you can go to her website com. She's on Instagram where we connected and as I said in the show notes Anna offers all listeners to this podcast a special introductory session so listen all the way through get to the end and you'll get some details around that if you like this episode there's another 27 or so in the in the can that you could listen to I'd really appreciate it if you shared it out on Facebook on Instagram or wherever you're connecting to it through subscribe to the podcast i am close to hitting number 30 and plan to do probably about 50 for the year and i'm looking to do kind of a reflective episode in a couple of weeks so look i'll leave it there just go and listen to this uh, great conversation with anna dulce thanks folks have a great weekend Welcome, folks. This is uh, another episode of the One Percent Better podcast, and this time uh, again over over Skype, uh, reaching out uh, across the the pond to Miami. I'm with Anna or Anna Dolce. So, welcome, Anna. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do the show from uh, not in a, not all jealous from a sunny Miami. Um, <laughs> I know you're not. No, but actually it's been really nice over the last couple of days here. I'm actually still sweating uh, at this time of the evening, which is a typical probably Irish thing to do. We complain about the sun when we get it for more than two days in a row, and then we uh-huh. don't see it again for the rest of the year. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> so, so Anna, I have your bio here because I've been reading over it and, you know, obviously helping me to, to come up with questions. There is a lot of things behind your name. You're you're a life and business strategist, direct a restaurant expert. I love this part: a hospitality zealot, a writer, and a speaker. Um, I know we connected over Instagram, and one of the things I was drawn to as well was the uh, the fact that you did TED talks, which which we'll we'll hopefully talk about later. But sure, how would you define yourself if you had maybe? 
you know, three or four words, what would you call yourself? Sure. I would be, I would say I'm very good at looking at people's businesses, lives and situations from above, catching that aerial view of what's going on and pointing them in the right direction of and solutions. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. it would be either either business or life or any instance, any life or business instance that can happen in our lives. And I pride myself on having the ability, the skill, which is uh, sometimes, you know, you can have an innate skill. But to me, I think um, it is more worked on. It's something that I really worked on and developed and I really got good at that, and I decided to go that route because it really, um, it really excite me, excites me to be able to do that, to point things out that are sometimes blind spots to people, either in their business or in, in their lives. So I'm very good at um, catching that aerial view, mm. if you will. No, I think uh, it sounds exciting, and I'm sure, I, you know, as we go through this, how how you've kind of got to that point to be able to do that. I, I've talked to a lot of people on these shows and we talk about intuition and something being innate versus maybe being developed over true experience. So it'd be interesting to see how you actually got to to to, to there uh, over over the next hour or so. But as well on your, your bio, you're, you're originally from Georgia. And I think the first time I read it, I, I just assumed it was uh, the state as opposed to the country. You you moved to the U.S., when you were quite young, so you were, you grew up in in Georgia. Was was Georgia part of the the Soviet Union at the time? I presume it was. Yes, it was. It was mid nineties when it was actually yeah late nineties when I moved to New York City from Georgia. But it was absolutely a part of Soviet Union. It was not a pretty situation. Hmm. And when you were growing up, like what was what was life like? I suppose. Can you talk to me a little bit about? kind of things that yeah. were sticking out in your from memory when you were growing up? Yeah, sure. So Georgia was a part of Soviet Union, as you said. And in the mid-90s is when uh, everything kind of dipped economically, politically. Georgia was not in a very good place. Um, basically, I mid-90s, uh, even in the capital of Georgia, uh, people would, didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. It was pretty much a third world country uh, living. Um, I mean, I remember scarcity everywhere. I remember corruption everywhere. And uh, it was impossible to survive, let alone thrive in that country during those times. So I had quite a bit of a um, early success as a teenager. One time I was um, just in school. Mm -hmm. And um, let me tell you how the schools looked yeah. when I was growing up. It was basically all the schools looked like jails. We didn't have heat. We didn't have air conditioning, nothing. It was – I remember going to school at um, – during the wintertime and sitting in class with my coat on, with my you know with gloves and hats and scarves because we were just freezing. So one of those days, I think it was fall time, somebody walked into class and started pointing out, um, started kind of looking at all of us kids. Uh, I was probably 15 years old at the time and looking at us and kind of selecting certain one, certain kids out of the class. So I got chosen to participate in a beauty pageant as a 15 year old. And that kind of started my show business career in Georgia 
Um, I went on after that. I participated in the contest and a pageant that they selected me for. And then I went on um, winning two more national titles after that within a year and a half. So I had an early start um, in show business and I had a little taste of national fame in as a teenager. Um, so I do remember that obviously that was very exhilarating and, um, just came out of nowhere. I wasn't striving for it. I wasn't going for it. I wasn't thinking about pageants or modeling or anything like that or show business. I was just going to school and doing my thing as a kid. Um, so that was exciting. But on the other hand, the situation, the economical political situation in the country was just oppressive. People were just oppressed. There was negativity everywhere, corruption everywhere. And, um, realizing the early fame, um, I had thought to myself, you know what, this is all exciting, but is this all I want to do? So that kind of, um, those thoughts preceded me thinking about what else did I want to do? Did I want to stay in show business or not? And that's how I got started thinking about leaving the country in the mid nineties. When you were in school, obviously the, you know, it was a difficult time. You were plucked there, you know, obviously attractive, young, good looking lady growing up in, in, in Georgia. But from a more academic perspective, were you really interested in, in your studies and learning and developing and growing that side of things at that stage as well? Yes, I was doing pretty well in school. I was always uh, a top performer in school and in college. So my academics were um I wouldn't say they were imposed, but they were sort of innate to me. I had a linguistic abilities. Um, matter of fact, I was studying German in school and I was best in class. And uh, the following year, I became best in the country. Like uh, I was even, um, I think I was number one or two on college level as far as linguistics go. So okay. it was always on my mind to do well in school. And I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but having the, having the opportunity to participate in something like that, as far as a national level beauty pageant, I mean, my parents were all supportive because it was not just an exposure. It was a possibility to get out of, out of the struggle that we were in. We were all in. Mm. Were your parents obviously massively supportive, as you said, were they a huge influence? Was there other influences you had around you at the time? Was your teacher very supportive or, or others that, that stick out in your mind? Uh, not really. My school mm. wasn't involved. My parents were, my mother in particular. She was very involved and she had accompanied me to every single, uh, re, I guess it's called recital. I'm not sure what it's called in English now. Mm-hmm. But every single training, you know, they would... Um, performance or training and um after the pageants i had quite a bit of emceeing and shows that i hosted and uh so she was always there she was always supportive and i was 15 16 years old at the time so i was still a child um, yeah you know was not even 18 but you're obviously going through that experience was, was kind of maybe accelerating at the speed at which you would mature and grow up and, and see things around you that i suppose pushed you forward Definitely. Actually, there was one thing about um, early fame that I had a huge realization after coming into that fame without even um, 
anticipating it. And that was, you know, show business was not what I thought it would be. I thought it was, it's like I had this dream of red carpets and uh, cheering crowds. And yes, that was happening. But what I didn't see on the other side, that it was a business. It was business before anything else. And I was, after winning the two titles, two national titles, I was approached to being a girl band and do modeling and with all kinds of opportunities. And they all sounded great. But once I discovered that it's like they were grooming you to make money off of you, that was a huge turnoff for me. So at that point, I had looked at my life and said, is this what I want to be? Do I want to be defined by these people? Do I want to be who they want me to be or do I want to find out who I really am yeah like that's does that make sense it totally makes sense from you know obviously you would from afar watch um girl bands and and singers coming up and you know they seem to a lot of the time self-destruct maybe in their 20s after a number of years of being groomed and not really having their own finding their own identity and then having some sort of meltdown and then finding it if they're lucky enough to find it at all. So it sounds like you had the uh, self-awareness to keep, uh, you know, to notice that at, at a such a young age, which must have been, you know, was was very, um, obviously looking back, was, was, was great. Yeah, I'm very grateful for it. I think I had great influences in my life, um, in my parents, especially my mom, who was there every step of the way, and she really mirrored to me what was going on. So I was never really alone. And I don't even think I had that realization alone. Um, but, uh, like you said, I did have the self-awareness and also, uh, the awareness of the environment and where everything was going. So I realized that, you know what, this is a struggling country and everything, everybody's doing what they can to survive and show business was just a business as it is a business and it's expected but it was a dirty business at that time in that country. Um, so that's something I didn't want to be a part of because I did realize actually the Ted talk that we're going to talk about later on was, um, about coming into fame. It was called the rule of fame. And that's exactly what I talked about. How, if you don't know who you are, um, before you become famous, the fame will define you. When did you start realizing who you are? <laughs> Good are, question. Are we jumping too far ahead? Uh, no, not at all. I, I think, I think, um, I think the biggest thing that helps us realize who we are when we are facing adversities. And one of my adversities was I had lost everything and came to United States with $40 in my pocket. And I said, Hey, um, how am I going to survive? And of course I had to call my mom from the airport to make sure she knew I was safe. So mm -hmm. that left me with 20 bucks because I didn't know how to call her on calling cards or anything. I just went to a straight to the payphone and called her. Right. So, um, next so thing you know, I had $20 to my name. So that kind of started my journey in New York city to figure out how am I going to survive? So I think until we're faced with, um, radical, radical challenges mm. that really push us way out of our comfort zone and way into the unfamiliar, yeah. we don't really realize who we are. Just before we suppose we kind of get into that, from the point of realizing that you didn't want to be part of this 
manufactured fame and being groomed as you mentioned mm-hmm. at what point did you say right i need to get out of here and and get to to the states or, or new york as and why new york even Mm-hmm. Well, my first uh, thought was Germany because I was studying German in school and it was, we weren't even, no, none of us in Georgia, well, I shouldn't say none of us, but um, USA was not even on our radar. It was mostly Europe because we are in Europe and closest place to go to would be European countries. And having studied German, I would, I thought it was a logical thing to go to Germany and start my, restart my life there or start my life there. Uh, the realization of that came from uh, just knowing that I, I had to say no. I had to say I came um, face to face with producers and directors and people who wanted to groom me into who I did not want to be. And at that time, I had a choice, say yes or say no. And there was only two things I could say. And I did say no. And once I said no, I said, OK, um, I'm not going to pursue this what is going to happen next? And that's how I started thinking about, hey, where is the best opportunity for me to go learn what am I really about and what do I like to do? Mm. And that's how Germany came to mind. Okay. But then you decided not to go to Germany. I did go to Germany. I stayed there for a year, uh, studied German and philosophy. I took uh, philosophy courses in uh, Heidelberg University. Oh, yeah. And... After that, a year later, I decided to explore New York. That's how New York happened. Okay, excellent. And you were obviously developing your English all the way through as well? Yeah, my English was zero. I remember having been on a flight from it was Frankfurt to Detroit. I had a pit stop in Detroit before New York. And the whole like nine, 10 hour flight, I drank Coca-Cola because I didn't know how to say juice in English, but I did know how to say Coca-Cola because it's universal. Yeah. Um, so that's how bad it was. I didn't know a single word in English. Mm. So absolutely feeling, facing your fear. And was there excitement obviously as well though, moving to the, to the States? There was excitement. There was excitement. But looking back at it now, I don't know. I, I don't even remember the excitement. All I remember is, hey, like, how am, how am I going? Where am I doing? Where am I going? And what's going to happen? It was exciting, but it was, I think it was more, I was more scared and excited. Yeah. You would have may, maybe have seen New York on TV and, and TV shows and whatnot. So when you, when you landed there after the, the twenty dollars on a reverse car on a call back back to Georgia it burned out. What what <laughs> what was going through your your mind and and do you remember kind of any standout things in those first few days, weeks, hours even yeah. maybe? I um I had discovered the way New York thought you know thought of going to New York happened is I had discovered a a very far acquaintance that lived in New York and we had a communication over email and she said, Hey, you know, you are in Germany. You're able to get a visa back then. You couldn't, you couldn't get to New York from Georgia. They would not give you, um, any type of, uh, visitor access to New York. So she said, you might be able to get a visa to New York. And if you want to explore and see what New York is about, I will be a great host. She was just very gracious to offer that. And I said, Hey, why not? Um, I can take the opportunity, see what's it about. If I want to stay there, if I don't want to stay there. So it was, it was sort of an experiment in the beginning. 
So she did, I did stay with her um, for two weeks. And after that, I had to find my way. And first thing I did was I found out where Georgian people were in New York. And I found out there were quite a few. And um, from upstate New York, where she lived, I decided to travel to Brooklyn, New York, where there is a large community of Eastern Europeans and Russians and Georgians. Mm-hmm. And I got introduced to people who started just like me, right. who were from my country. Okay. Yeah, like I think obviously Ireland, ha- you know, there's probably lots of Irish uh, in, in, in New York as, as there is across all of them, um, mm-hmm. all of the states and a lot, a lot of folks even in my family in the f- 30s and 40s would have moved to New York with uh, with pretty much nothing at all and just started to to try and build a life for themselves. So you you went to that yes. community, uh, people started helping you out and things started to form. What what was you know, what were the, the next few weeks, months, um things that stick out from, from that time? Yeah. The they Georgian people at heart, they are how should I say this? Uh, I would say they are very, very hospitable and they really know, they really take hospitality to the next level. So having me or someone like me come to New York who didn't know the language and didn't know where to go and what to do and wanted to establish themselves, um, other people from my country were definitely a huge support. They provided the house where um, it was typical immigrant life. I don't know if you've heard anything about Brooklyn immigrant life, Rob, have you? Mm. Have you seen any TV shows yeah. or anything like that like, about I, it? Like I would have, I would have, and I would have, as I said, had re- relatives in that area. Queens, I think, is the area they're mainly in as well. But I suppose it's it's just all banding together and helping each other out. Yeah. But but living, it, you know, probably having a great time with with very little, but probably enjoying it as much as possible as well. Yeah, exactly. So we all pretty much they all came together and to help each other. And I remember living with like six other people in the same house. And that's how I started out. It was like two, three weeks, I believe, that I stayed in their house until I was able to get out of there and get a job and kind of become more independent. Mm. But that was definitely a huge turning point where um, I don't know what would happen if if they weren't there, if that hospitality, if that heart and, and graciousness wasn't there to say, you know, um, we know what you want to do. We've we've gone that we've done it and we're here to help you. It doesn't matter who you are. So I'm I'm going to be forever grateful for that opportunity. Absolutely. So did you start as you started working and picking up English? Obviously, you had, that may be a, a natural flair for languages. So that maybe maybe was positive and helped you uh, catch catch on yeah. quickly. I think um, German certainly helped me learn English much faster. And mm. also, um, I got a job who where my boss was a, a Jewish lady who spoke a little bit of well, actually quite a bit of Yiddish. Right. And my German and Yiddish, Yiddish is like uh, almost like broken German. Okay. And we were able to communicate. And she was absolutely amazing. She not only taught me English, but she taught me proper English. So having to deal with her for probably next 18 months was an incredible experience. She would just always be there for me and correct me and teach me the right way to speak. I also went and took classes 
And within six months, um, I was, have you heard of ESL classes, English as a second language? Yeah, yeah. We have ESL classes here. Mm -hmm. I remember being thrown out of the class gently and told, hey, you're too advanced for this class. I don't know what you're doing. If you want to go to college, go to college, but you don't need to be here. So that happened six months after I landed in New York City with no English. So I think I had a innate ability for um, linguistics and languages, as I said before. So that definitely helped. Would you would you even expand it to say that you had this kind of uh, ability to really focus in on whatever is in front of you and kind of almost like an obsession to 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 know it or to understand it quite well because we talk about we talk about you being an entrepreneur now but it seems like whatever is thrown in your general direction and you kind of almost are in a you have to do this and understand it and it just mm-hmm. kind of absorbs quicker is that something you find when you do when you apply to anything do you just you know, I think it? I think we all have that ability. Mm. We all have that ability. Uh, we are exploiting it. It depends on some of us are not exploiting it though, and mm. some of us or at different levels or different times of our lives we might not be exploiting that. But we all have that inside of us. It's mm. like um, when when uh, when you go, can I say balls to the wall you on can this say podcast? You but can, when you go balls yeah. to the wall. You don't have a choice. What, what do you do? You learn, you figure it out. And that's kind of what my situation was. Yeah, I had to find my way. And I remember feeling if I go on the street today and somebody asks me for directions or help or something, I'm not able to respond. So I felt mm. completely helpless. So that was a, a huge motivation for me. Like if I'm staying here, I need to learn the language. So that definitely, definitely helped. Mm. In the last couple of years, I got a lot into meditation and mindfulness and I suppose being able to focus uh, on one thing in either in short bursts or, or over a number of hours or days or weeks has has developed, I suppose. And because of so much distractions with multi social media and whatnot, you kind of get a little bit, uh, find it more difficult to, to focus on things. I think meditation and that helps, but it's, it's almost like yeah. you're in a meditative state when you, you're kind of put into trust into this, it, it maybe it's the fight or flight in some ways, right? So you're you have to um, fight for it and focus on what you want and and make it work because there's almost no other option, really. Yeah, and I think the at the bottom of all that is your desire. It's like, what do you want? If you do know what you want and why you want it, and it's compelling you are going to focus. You have no choice but to focus. It has to be that bad. It has to be like, I don't have, this is my only choice. And that's when we focus and that's when we give it our all. Mm. And and at that point, what was your ambition? Was it to, number one, just to learn English and make a, a steady income in, in the US? Was that the, the first goal or objective or were you already looking further no, down the road um, my my first goal was not to be deported honestly okay. my first goal my first goal was i don't want to go back to georgia and right. i have nowhere else to go because i knew if i went back there i would be basically facing the same situation i don't even think country was getting better i think they were getting worse and then i had another thought like okay here she is it's like I had the voices of other people in my head as well mm. saying, here she is, the former beauty queen. Let's 
what is she going to be? What is she going to do? There were all these expectations on me as well if I went back there. And I knew I just didn't want to live that life because what it would be is, yes, I would be groomed into somebody I'm not. I would be either a performer or do whatever in show business. I don't know what it would be. And then, um, as I said in one of my talks, marry rich politico and live happily ever after. That's not the life I was aiming for. So my motivation was, I don't want to go back there. <laughs> yeah. And in order not to, in order to not go back there, I need to adapt and I need to learn the new things to be able to become the contributing member of society in the U.S. If that's where I want to stay, does that make sense? No, no, absolutely. I'm just uh, very interested in yeah. in the thought process that is going going through you, or kind of you're looking back on. So, not to spend all of our time in the kind of early, but it's, it's fascinating. So, what when would the next big milestone jump out at you? I'm reading, you know, in your, again in your bio about being an entrepreneur at 17 and starting your own talent agency. Were you only 17 at this stage? Yeah, after my first. Uh, Miss Georgia 95 after that um, when I decided to start my own talent agency and that's how I became an entrepreneur at okay. the age of 17. Mm -hmm. So you were bringing some of those skills uh, of being an entrepreneur so you had that entrepreneurial uh, bug I suppose bitten at this stage and that's something that you were keen to try again? I wasn't in the beginning uh, because I just simply it was too far fetched for me. I didn't know basics. I didn't know how anything worked. I didn't know the language. So my mm -hmm. first thing was to get established and I got a regular job and I just started working. And then, um, finally I wanted to look beyond the job and I said, what can I do? What can I do? And I stumbled onto restaurant industry. So that's how I entered restaurant industry at the age of 2021. And that was a stumble into it. Kind of stumbled into it. I heard that I can have flexible hours and uh, not be chained to the desk. And that's how I ventured out and uh, started taking bartending classes, became a bartender. And that was my first start in the restaurant industry. Okay. So you did you then start seeing, okay, this is something you can potentially make a, a career out of and you learned very fast there yes yes i got i got promoted pretty quickly um after becoming a bartender i really took on the role and made it my own it was exciting uh i was working in the heart of new york and in downtown brooklyn and the whole scene was just very exciting to me at that time i mean mind you i was 21 years old and I hadn't even tasted any liquor. I don't drink to this day. So I wasn't, I wasn't into drinking or clubbing or anything. Just the whole business was exciting to me just to be able to, uh, serve people, provide entertainment and just social, social aspect of it was very exciting to me. Hmm. And, uh, once I kept getting promoted, promoted, uh, became a manager, I, uh, oversaw operations of a really, large restaurant in downtown Brooklyn. And then at that time there was an offer made to me to become a part owner of a restaurant, which I accepted. And that's how I became uh, an entrepreneur two years after I landed in New York city with 40 bucks. <laughs> so you've turned that 40 bucks or down to 20 kind of, uh, exponentially grown. I, I would say over those couple of years, um, 
were you yes. during that few years and even afterwards were you aware at, at like I suppose at the speed at which you were taking things on or were you just constantly moving so fast that you were maybe not taking that second or two or to reflect yeah I would say it was fast um however uh, there were times there were times when I was thinking they weren't moving fast enough <laughs> mm. you know I was always on the lookout for what can I do better? What can I do bigger? How can I advance more? So it was definitely on my mind to progress as much as I could. And the restaurant opportunity was amazing. I felt like, uh, you know, it was, it was huge. It was huge. I was an entrepreneur and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted from the talent agency days. I should say that. To say at this stage, you're a couple of years in there. You've now got the, the language well, I suppose, well understood. Had you started then setting yourself another set of goals or objectives now that you've kind of consolidated and you were, you know, the whole idea of deporting is gone probably at this stage? Yeah, my goal was to uh, grow and to, even though I was in the restaurant industry and I was an entrepreneur at this time, I still wasn't sure if this was the end game. Mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't know if I wanted to be a business owner, a small business owner, and just be strapped to one location and have this one location and work on it for the rest of my life. I don't think that's what I wanted at the time. I didn't see it happening that way. I didn't know where it was going to go, but I knew it was a great opportunity for, for that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, later on I discovered that, um, it was not something that I wanted to do. And we, we, you know, I really learned a lot through that business because it failed me and my partner both failed in the business and we just closed the doors one day and never went back. So yes, I did want to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't think that that was the vehicle for me for the long term. Okay. And from those, I suppose from you know, everything they say about successes, multiple failures beforehand, what were the kind of major things you felt maybe we made mistakes on in that initial venture that, that you learned most from? Mm -hmm. The restaurant business, uh, imagine you are working in the industry and you know ins and outs of everything pretty much. You can you can put me in any restaurant and I could run it with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. And then I became an entrepreneur where my, my restaurant was my own my own business. It was my responsibility not just to work in it but to grow the business. And I didn't know mm -hmm. the difference between the two. Sure. So my biggest – uh, my biggest realization was you can be an entrepreneur, you can be a business owner, have a very successful business, but it's not going to grow the way you want it to until you stop working in it and start working on it. Okay. So that was my biggest, biggest learning so point. Separating yourself from the, the actual rolling your sleeves up and day-to-day -day work from the actual business development yes. angle. Yeah. If you're, if you're caught up in the four walls mm. and you don't see what's going on outside, you can't see your business from afar, you're not going to be able to grow it. And that's exactly what happened to us. Okay. So the next challenge after that, then where did you go from there? What was the, the next uh the next opportunity that came your way. Next challenge was to, um, to tell you the truth. It's very hard to kind of 
pick up after such a, it was a big, big letdown. I felt Mm. like I have failed. You know, I had this sinking feeling like I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a a shame. It was more of a guilty feeling of saying I let myself down and I let my partner down. We were both in it, um, you know, the same way. We didn't blame each other, but we knew that we failed. Both of us failed. So my biggest thing was, how do I pick up from this? Where do I go from this? So now I had a taste of entrepreneurship and my most logical thing to do at the time was to go get a job. And that was very hard for me. Um, I decided to move to Florida and get a job down there. And I decided that I wanted to work in the restaurant industry and learn more, not just, not just not just about restaurants, but I thought that if I got familiar with corporate culture and kind of, it would be a training opportunity for me, not just a job to realize how a business should really work. Hmm. So I took on uh, a job with the restaurant management group in South Florida, and I stayed with them for quite a while for nine and a half years. And that was my biggest, um, that's where I solidified, uh, my skills for business, for restaurants. And it, it kind of, I, I, my knowledge became more organized, mm. if you know what I mean. No, absolutely. And, you know, I would hear other entrepreneurs saying that they're, they've often taken out, instead of doing an MBA in one of the, the top schools in the US, they've taken out, I think it was Tim Ferriss that he took out like a 140 grand loan and just tried to, to play the stock exchange or to, to set up his own business knowing that it might fail because he learned so much more than out of out of books. I guess over that nine or so years, do you feel, was it like a hands-on learning of a, like a practical MBA and probably a lot more than you'd ever learn in, in, in school? Absolutely. It was it wasn't hands-on. I had to make it hands-on. So what happened is I got hired as a manager of a restaurant and then I kept, uh, taking on bigger, bigger roles, bigger leadership roles as an assistant general manager and general manager, and then going above uh, and beyond that. Mm. And what I wanted is I didn't want to just have a job. I wanted to learn, as I said, and in corporate culture, sometimes you can be tough. You can, you can, face a lot of resistance, a lot of competition, because what happens is when somebody steps up, somebody has to step down. So it was sort of brutal in that way. There was a lot of competition. But one thing I believe that I could outwork everybody and I could show them that I took it seriously and I treated it like my own business. And I became a person who stood out, who they could not deny of an opportunity. It sounds like I'm glad I didn't run into you in the uh, in the boardrooms in those those number of years. Did did you have um, standout mentors or influencers during that period of time, or were you making a lot of decisions based on just you knowing it was the right way to go? In within the company, yeah, like just had you influencers and and mentors that guided you along the way mm. during that time. I did not. I did not. I was I was going. Um, I was pretty much employing my instinct, Rob, you know, it was, it was me saying to myself, what is it that I can learn from this situation and why am I here? I'm not just here to make money. Mm -hmm. I'm here to extract as much knowledge as I can and become as valuable as I can be 
to this company in hopes of being able to take those skills and apply them to whatever else I wanted to do later on, which is kind of what happened. So there was no, no real mentors. It was a great company, but there was no real mentors, nobody I can follow. And I'm the type of person who doesn't really participate in politics or, um, kissing up. <laughs> sure. So I was very independent. I just pretty much put my head down and I did what I needed to do plus above, above. Mm. And I have a question about work-life balance later on that we'll get to, but uh, it kind of sure. sounds like there there was, was there much of a work-life balance at this stage or were you really just consuming yourself in, in like learning and uh, growing and developing? Yeah, I don't, I don't believe in work-life balance. I don't think it exists. I don't think balance exists at all. So okay. when we discuss it later, I can expand on that. But there was, there was chaos. There was no balance of any sort. There was chaos because when you work in the restaurant industry, um, on any level, you, you don't have calm and serenity. It, you're working at odd hours. Mm. Uh, my schedule was crazy. And, uh, imagine going to, going to work at 5 PM and getting out of work at 5 AM. And then next day doing, um, starting working at 9am and finishing at 6pm. And it's like a constant erratic craziness. So there was definitely no balance. Um, and that was, that's one of the huge challenges about the industry. And uh, I don't know how I made it nine and a half years, but I did. <laughs> and and for, at what stage in that nine and a half year journey did you say or maybe it was early on that uh i i'm i'm doing this very much for my own development that i have a a bigger end game in mind here that i want to get out and do my own thing um you know some people spend 30 40 years working for the same corporate environment and you know they're yes. a number for the duration and they're happy doing that it sounded obviously yes. like you weren't happy doing that so was that something that was very early on in that journey that you knew you were getting as much out as as possible yes i i did uh, first you know i entered i entered that world with the notion of i'm going to do this temporarily i'm going to learn i'm going to add value and i'm going to learn through that process while i'm adding value and then i'm going to do something of my own mm. but here's what happens um I think I could have got out three, four years in three, four years rather than waiting nine and a half years. Mm -hmm. So yes, I became comfortable. And that was, I think that was uh, my second learning moment or years of learning, I guess, that we are very easily, it's very easy to get used to a good life. Even though I had a erratic schedule, there was a lot of perks that my work, my job provided and it is so easy to get sucked into the familiar and the comforting and to do the same over same thing over and over again. So there was a moment of that. And nine and a half years later, I realized, you know what? I have overstayed here. I could have left much sooner. Yeah, that that's it's, it's very interesting that that whole point. I just recently did a coaching diploma and towards the end of that, we had a, a now a, a professional coach come in and he said he regretted staying on too long in his corporate job and not taking the the leap sooner and he said that's mm -hmm. the one regret he had and yeah. that you know that sounds amazing right but I, I i would still say there's probably 
a good percentage of people not in there presenting saying that they wish they left sooner because they don't it doesn't always potentially work out so what was the fear factor for you that was holding you back a little bit and how did you just and we can curse so you can say how did you say fuck this i'm just going to go for it (laughs) anyway so um what was that dance i suppose you played for a period of time to say will i won't die when will i make that leap and you know was it building up your plan b and and uh then mm-hmm. feeling like it wasn't such a a jump into the unknown. I'm I'm really interested in that area. Sure. Yeah. It was it was a, a dance slash torture for last two years of me staying at that job, and it was a torture because I knew I had to do it. I knew I had to leave, but I couldn't bring myself to leave. And uh, the turning point was, you know as human beings, we're motivated by or put to action by two things, either desperation or inspiration. You probably heard that that before. (laughs) So at that point in my life, I was desperate to save my health, to, to not lose myself, not lose, you know, I didn't have a personal life. I didn't have friends. I was just spending all of my time at work. Mm. And I said, you know what? Time is going by and uh, I don't have anything to show for it. I've been here for too long. So I got to the state when I said, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. If I don't do something now, my next five years are going to come and I'm going to be in the same place. From my, so my motivation or my ability to take the plunge or take the leap came from desperation, from saying to myself, you know, how long are you going to be in the same situation? And if, if you continue in this, it's only going to get worse. So there is no, there is no romantic story that I can tell you like, you know, I I got so inspired. No, I wasn't. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I said, it can't be any worse. Uh, Another thing is when you have such an erratic schedule as I did, I remember I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. My body was going, I had gained weight. Um, it wasn't like too much, but I knew I was not at my weight that I normally was. And I just felt um, I, I was always tired. My focus wasn't there. You know, I started showing up at work and last two years, I was probably not all there all the time. So I know yeah. I wasn't giving them what they wanted. Yeah. And I wasn't giving myself what I needed. Mm. So, so tell me about the day you made that final decision and what went through your mind and how did you feel? <laughs> did it feel, did it feel good? Yeah, I had actually, I had, Maybe a year and a half before I quit that job, I had hired a coach and I always believed in coaching Mm. and, uh, I had hired a coach and I was working with her and, uh, but that was not something we were working on. It was something that we started gradually working on. And I remember setting the date and, uh, setting the date and saying, okay, this is the day I'm going to talk to my boss. I'm going to go in there and, tell him what I needed to say. And, but at that time I didn't have a plan B. I didn't know what I was going to do after. But what I knew is that if I didn't stop going to work every single day, I would never figure out my next step. So, and then I'm not, I'm not promoting this. I'm not promoting that every single person who wants to be an entrepreneur and quit, should quit their job and have no plan B and just, Mm -hmm. you know, jump and build your wings on the way 
down, as yeah. they say. I don't think that's for everybody. And I, as a matter of fact, most entrepreneurs will tell you they will be working. They are working their jobs full time until their business becomes viable. And that's when they make that leap, which is not really a leap at that time. Um, so, but it is what worked for me. I remember going, um, and speaking to my boss and we had a 45 minute conversation and he was completely stunned. And first thing he said to me is, are you sure you don't want to stay longer because you don't know what you're going to do? Are you sure you don't want to line up another job or whatever you need to do? And I said, no, (laughs) I can't stay here any longer. I need to leave in order to figure out what I want. And he was a career restaurateur. And to him, that was just, he's never heard that before. So he was really, really stunned. Mm. And do you think it was, so was it that he never saw as another alternative, so he didn't think anyone else would be? He was, he was working for a company and I think that's what he knew and that's what he was comfortable with. So Mm. he wasn't exploring entrepreneurship himself. Uh, Maybe he wanted to, but he never did. And he was much older than me and his sights were set on staying with a company and nothing is wrong with that. We, not everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, Because we do need people who run restaurants and who work for companies. So I don't think he saw what I saw for myself. He, uh, we parted on good terms. We're friends to this day and I admire and respect him so much. And I learned so much from him, but at that time he was protecting me. He was trying to say, Hey, um, I want you to be safe. I want you to have a plan when you leave here. I don't want you to just leave and never find a job again and, um, end up, you know, not in a situation you wanted to be in. So that was that was good of him, I guess. You know, he uh, he was trying sure. to give you that, that comfort blanket. So did you say you then stayed for a while till till you built up a plan? Yeah, I stayed for about two and a half, three months, just to give him time to um, kind of not replace me, but to be able to kind of take my work and delegate it in ways that would work for them. So I did definitely give him a leeway. And, um, yeah. And about three months later I was done. Done. And, uh, so what was the, was that a sense of weight lifted? Were you, did (laughs) did you get that sense of freedom that you were looking for and now you could take on the world or was there a realization, shit, I'm going to have to actually figure stuff out now. Yeah. Sounds like there was a pattern there. You kind of liked getting into scenarios where, God, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And things will, uh, you probably think at an accelerated rate then and make it work. Yeah, it was actually my first thought was, oh my God, I get to sleep in. Lovely. (laughs) I think I took about two weeks and really worked on reversing my, uh, my, uh, schedule because I was used to going to sleep at five in the morning and six in the morning and waking up at 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon. And I've always loved getting up early in the morning, but I just never had an opportunity to do so because I knew the importance of getting a full night's rest. Um, so I started working on just getting my health back and I told myself, you know, for next few weeks, two months, I'm just going to restore myself. I'm going to work on my body. 
I'm going to get back to who I was when I was my healthiest. And that was my first goal. And then during that time, I started obviously pondering on, hey, what can be my next opportunity? But you see, again, not everybody has that opportunity to say, hey, I'm just going to quit my job and take two months off and just be in a la-la land and take care of my health and figure out what I wanted to do. Most people do not do not have that opportunity. So that's why I'm saying it's something that worked for me, but couldn't work for everybody. Yeah. So over those two months, did your subconscious start serving up lots of new ideas? Did did you have a creative period and then come up with a plan? I did not. I found myself uh, really spinning my wheels and trying to figure out what I can do. And I remember... Um, I remember looking into restaurant business and I said, I said to myself, I don't want to own another restaurant. I don't want to go through, you know, that challenge again. I don't want to work for anybody else, but what is it that I'm going to do? Mm -hmm. And, um, I stayed in the contemplative mode for quite a while, probably months and months until I really, I had a moment when I said, what am I really good at? What do I love doing and what do I have my professional capital already invested in, which was entrepreneurship, restaurants, and I really liked uh, guiding and helping people. So that's kind of how business coaching came about. Sure. Yeah, like absolutely. Uh, kind of core values are something I do in, in coaching with people all the time and try to identify what they are and um, mm -hmm. you know and for me I suppose helping people learning and helping others to learn are massively important did you go through a, yes. a process to kind of identify those or, or what what that that was for you or did it start naturally emerging um, I I think one of the openings I had was when I read, um, have you read, um, so good they can't ignore you by Cal Newport? Uh, I've actually read another one by Cal Newport called deep work, but, uh, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to write that because for all my episodes, I have book recommendations. So that's, that's one. So, so good. They can't ignore you. Okay, cool. I'll, yes. Yeah, the one that you read is his latest book, I believe. Yeah. Deep work is really good. It's all about focusing yeah. and his, his dis disdain for, um, social media because it d distracts mm -hmm. us so much. Oh, but in but he also says, like like anything, if you use Twitter or Instagram for positive messaging, it has a really positive impact. So it's Correct. how you use stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So so good they can't ignore you. Cool. No, that's that's definitely mm -hmm. good. So you read that and you got a. I read that, and the main idea I got from it is everybody's looking for the skies to part. And for a light to shine down on you and say, hey, uh, Rob, this is what you're destined to do. And what Cal said in his book is it is a little more practical than that. And it doesn't have to be this romantic situation that happens all the time. Sometimes it's you have to look at what you're really good at, what you already invested in, and then work on that skill, develop that skill. And once you do um, you do become good at it and then you start enjoying it and that becomes your life's purpose. Mm. So 
for me, I had sat for months waiting for the skies to part and working on my health and meditating and doing all that, but it didn't work for me. <laughs> um, so his practical advice, I really took it to heart. And that's when I sat down and said, you know what, this just makes sense for me right now to say, I love restaurants. I know how to help them. I love helping people. Um, I love helping people in this way. And, um, the vehicle is right because I already, I'm already invested in it. Sure. I already know the inner workings of a restaurant. I've been a restaurant owner. Yeah. I worked for a company. I've started from the bottom in the industry. Mm. So I've been on all sides of the industry. That's the vehicle. Yeah. So the thing is, um, what we have to realize is if we're looking for a purpose or something to do that's going to light us up, um, we just have to find, we don't have to think about the vehicle. We just have to find how we're going to be useful with our gift. So you have to find your gift and search for the vehicle later because the vehicle can be anything. For me, it was restaurants because mm. that's what I was invested in. No, it's, Does that it's, make sense? No, t totally. It's, it's, you know, a lot of what your purpose has become about was what was already there, but just maybe looking at it through a different lens or, or having a different role in, in and around it. Correct. Yeah. Just having a different approach because you can, uh, it's like, look at the outcome. When we're looking at our purpose, we have to look at our outcome. What is it that I want to do? If we're thinking about what is it that I want to do with my life? It doesn't mean that, um, the question you ask yourself is going to determine your answer. So if you ask yourself, well, um, what industry do I want to work in? That's probably not going to give you your purpose. Your purpose that we're looking for is the outcome. So what do I want to, how do I want to contribute? What do I want to feel like? What do I want to do on a daily basis? And then we can determine the field and the, and the company and the industry and how we give and what role we play in that industry. Mm. But we just have to determine what is our what is our contribution going to be, if that makes sense. No, it does. And again, with, with coaching, the beauty of coaching in its kind of, it's the most classical, not classical form, but its purest form is that you're helping, you're of, of service to that other person or team. And it doesn't really matter what their area they're in. It's you're helping them to become more fulfilled and uh, as a result you become more fulfilled yourself so i think that's you know that's the, the beauty of it and that it, it can be across all industries and as you said here you know you've done it for the the business world for sports as, as well so it, it obviously has been that for you yes yes yeah yeah it did start with restaurants um but i also realized that this the skills that, that I had at that point were pretty much universal. And then everything, you know, I have clients who are professional athletes. I have clients who are, uh, artists and musicians and, uh, people who are looking for fulfilling relationships. And so coaching is all across the board for me. Um, and a lot of them are restaurateurs, but when it comes to when it comes to coaching, it is universal. Hmm. And how have you developed your, well, won your skills in the coaching world over the last few years and then even on the other side, the, your client base? Because, 
you know, if you're known for coaching and developing, helping restaurateurs, is it by referral that they might connect you with the retail, the healthcare, and sports, or what? What? How did that work out? Um, as far as developing the clientele, believe it or not, a lot of um, lot of my clients in the beginning came from social media and from my restaurant connections in the very beginning. And then I started uh, writing and I didn't start writing articles or doing anything on social media just to get clients. That was not my initial thought. And it is not a thought right now. I I started writing because I needed to write. I felt like I needed to get something across. And uh, I remember one of the first articles I wrote resulted in a speaking uh, engagement. And that was uh, kind of a um, confirmation for me uh, that said, you know what, you are onto something here. People do want to hear about this. People do want you to speak to them about this. And it gave me more confidence and kind of a more proof that what I was onto was useful and was valuable. Mm. That's that's really interesting how how that develops um, over over time. I suppose I am conscious that we're an hour in, uh, which is is always a good sign. And uh, so maybe just to, like I uh, God, we can keep going because it's it's really interesting for me, um, and I'm sure people listening will be very interested as well. You after the nine and a half years, you took a few months out. Then you got into the coaching realm. Over the last few years, what are the kind of standout things that you'd maybe like to talk about? Just touch on that. You know, again, the one percent better learnings for people that they could uh, take from o- over the last few years as you developed and grown grown your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in my coaching business, the biggest challenge was to stop researching and stop doubting and stop um, overanalyzing everything and just do it. That was my biggest holdup in the very beginning. And uh, as a matter of fact, what happened was I was not familiar with, because my my first thought, Rob, was I'm going to be a restaurant coach and consultant. And um, as a good researcher would, uh, what I did was I went on and I found people who were in, dus- in the industry who stood out to me, who, whose ideas I connected with and whose, whose, uh, yeah, whose ideas I connected with. And I said, I'm going to reach out to these people and see how they did and how they got to where they got to. And what is this field really like? And what's it like to be a coach and so on and so forth. So one particular um one particular person in the industry I reached out to and uh, he took on a role of kind of mentoring me and showing me the ropes and becoming my coach on how to be a coach. And um, that was my attempt to not just do, but to, to learn more than do. And I, it turned out actually turned out to be a biggest mistake I've made because through that relationship, um, I realized he wasn't equipped to give me what I wanted at that time. He overpromised and underdelivered, so to say. And uh, not that he had bad intentions. I think that he kind of uh, a bit, how do you say, he bit more than he can chew. <laughs> yeah. And 
that relationship didn't end very well, but it was a great lesson for me to say to myself, you know, you don't need to research. You don't need to see what everybody else is doing and how it's done. You just need to start doing and you're going to figure out as you go along and your biggest lessons are going to come from, uh, doing and everything that you don't know, you're going to learn through taking the massive, uh, crazy radical action that Mm. you haven't taken so far. Nothing else is going to learn, teach you anything that you really need to know. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. Again, uh, just kind of, just because I've gone through this journey of of learning to be a coach or training to be one for the last year and Mm -hmm. I would have devoured five books in parallel while I was, um, trying to, you know, take in as much as possible and do some coaching in, in parallel to build up your hours so you could get accredited and whatnot. But the, the last while, it's just become more the doing and to be comfortable with the not having the perfect answer um, to, to right. for, for your client. There was that sense in the early stages that, God, I don't know what I'm fucking doing here. I don't know how to give this person the the answer they're looking for and it was uncomfortable not to be mm-hmm. comfortable with that but it's kind of you know shifting Correct. over time and one of the areas i would coach in heavily is around intuition and going into the feeling of, of and, and an imagery people coming up with a an image and kind of playing with the image and just going with that so love just mm-hmm. kind of touching on all of that but it it is so true what you're what you're saying it's cool to hear it it just reaffirms that you're not a fraud you're not going in not knowing anything it's just not to have uh, the perfect answer because everybody has a different way of looking at things you know yes yes and that was my uh, my uh hang up in the beginning i thought that i needed to know everything about everything about everything and i could not be i need to be in a place where i'm not able to be stumped in the conversation but the thing is if we tap into our intuition as you said you're not going to be stumped for a conversation. You're always going to have an answer and the answer is going to be useful and valuable for your client. And, um, I discovered that through realizing that expert is just a person who knows more than the person he's helping. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I thought I needed to know everything about every type of restaurant business there is, everything about every kind of business venture there is. And there are things that, honestly, I didn't want to learn. <laughs> there yeah. were things that just didn't jive with me and my soul. Like I didn't want to go too deep into financial world. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand the basics probably a lot more than basics of that world but it's not something that i want to devour and make it my own and make a study of it Mm. i can help a business owner but i don't need to be an accountant i don't need to be fluent in taxes to be able to do that yeah all i need is a basic knowledge of how it works right yeah you're you're singing so one of my biggest realizations was you are already an expert if you know more than the person you're talking to yeah yeah or 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 not or even just knowing that you don't know more but trying to open up their mind to like they're an expert and sometimes they get blocked and you're you're they're they're just asking the wrong questions and they're they have blind spots as you said early on it's it's kind of finding and and, uh highlighting shining a light on those blind spots but yeah i can totally empathize with the um 
the financial challenges i'm I'm much i think more right brain than than left brain and it, maybe you're mm-hmm. similar that yes. comes into the eq um area that i think is is fascinating for me uh, you know about uh the different uh competencies of emotional intelligence and for coaching yes. that's that's massive i think yeah and for coaching uh, eq is overpowers iq you don't need iq as much as you need eq like just you said yeah exactly um i'd love to talk a little bit about the uh the t- teas that are flirted about it for a while the the, the ted talk uh you're, you're my first <laughs> my first guest that has that i'm aware of that has done a ted talk so i think that's really really cool how did that come about and, and i'd love to know the i suppose the practice that you might have to put in or the preparation for one of those yeah sure i the ted talks actually are um pretty widespread now and i remember in 2016 i applied for a local ted event and i was chosen to speak um and the whole process was you know every tedx committee is different they all work differently they're all um they are affiliated with ted but they are still separate they they go by ted's rules but they still do their own thing as far as on a local level. So that creates a lot of, um, that creates a lot of differences, meaning my Ted talk was a little bit disorganized in a way that, um, there was some miscommunication in the beginning. So I thought I was doing the talk and then maybe a month or two later, they hadn't reached back out to me. And I said, Hey, I haven't heard from you. What is going on? We're a month or actually, no, it was a few weeks before the event. And they said, no, we have canceled your talk because we haven't heard back from you. So there was some kind of miscommunication on, there was some technical error. I think that happened. Somebody didn't get an email or something. And, um, for, so what happened is for two months I was preparing for the talk and then I was told that I was no longer speaking. And once I got that response, you know, obviously I was disappointed and, but I said, no, it is what it is. And, um, I stopped all practice and I just knew it wasn't going to happen. And then a week later they come back and say, oh my God, we're able to, we are, we really want you on and we're able to still have you speak. (laughs) So at this point it was like a very big emotional roller coaster. Okay. I'm not speaking. I'm speaking. Which one is it? So the whole preparation process was kind of chaotic and, um, needless to say, uh, the talk, just doing the Ted talk, it was super, super exhilarating. It was very, very exciting. And, um, the whole preparation that I put in it, it was all, I don't think it really mattered because what happened is when you, when you know what you're talking about, um, first thing you want to do is just internalize your speech as opposed to memorize it. And when you get on stage, it's just going to come out the way it's going to come out. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. So I'm not sure if I'm going away from the question you asked me, but you want to, you might want to bring me back to, no, it's, it's interesting here, Rob. No, no, it's, it's all, it's all good. I'm just like going through, you know, when I do presentations myself, it's one, big challenge i've had over the years and definitely got a bit better at it but i think when you talk about something that is personal or that is intimate to you it makes all the difference and uh 
when it's your own t- truth it, uh, it it certainly is easier to talk about and you know you can completely believe in it then so i think that's what you know what you what you obviously talked about was was your own th- truth and... yes 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 it was it was called uh i was pretty much talking about walking away from fame and how fame can be destructive on the individual and organizational level as well um and uh societal level so it was it was only a 12 minute talk ted talks can only be 18 minutes but it's mm. wise to if anybody's applying for one or doing one it's it's good to know that you want to be under rather than over because they will kick you off stage so i did about a 12 minute talk and it's very hard to condense the big story that you might have and the points that you want to make into that short a period of time and deliver it with uh, powerfully sure, and with grace as I wanted to do it. So mm. it was definitely challenging. Um, the biggest takeaway or biggest learning point for me was to not try to memorize it. And, and also when you're applying for Ted, it's not a regular talk. It's not a regular speech, so to say. It's a talk. They call it a TED talk for a reason. Mm. So it needs to be very conversational. Right. Um, so there are certain perimeters and certain guidelines that you have to go by for mm. TED. And did you, how many kind of dry runs or practice efforts did you do in front of people to, to give you that extra sense of comfort? Was that a big thing? <laughs> None. I probably <laughs> did one or two runs. Um, in front of uh, my friend, but that was it. I really didn't Whoa. practice it in front of the audience. Okay. And if you have an opportunity to do that, obviously that that would be very very helpful because you can um, kind of iron out some of the kinks or yeah. anything and get get good feedback, hopefully from the right audience. But yeah, I didn't take that opportunity to do that. Okay, that's one thing I've learned from some presentations is just to even do it in front of one or two people and just go right mm-hmm. through because it's it does it does create that similar tension or discomfort that you experience when you're up there then and uh it certainly mm-hmm. helps on the day but um no that's yeah uh, i see it more valuable in um kind of doing a do a practice run in front of the audience one or two people or how many of our people in order to just tighten up your talk or your speech just to get a great feedback. For me personally, there was no fear of being on stage. I know a lot of people have a fear of public speaking. I didn't experience that. I only experience that if I don't know what I'm speaking about. In this case, it wasn't the case. Sure. So, sure. But yeah, practice definitely, definitely helps. Absolutely. Um, might just go into kind of present day what, what does a typical day look like for you now Anna? what what uh or is there such a thing there is and there isn't um i what i do is it's you know it's as an entrepreneur who works from home um it's very easy to kind of stay home and not leave and uh get distracted because there's nobody pushing you nobody's telling you what to do you're not reporting to anyone mm. so i think structure is even more important self um self-imposed structure is more important for entrepreneurs than anybody else right and what that looks like for me is i have a schedule that i go by even though I'm very right-brained, I do my very best to stick to my schedule. 
um, starting from waking up super early in the morning. Um, to me, that's 5.30, 6 o'clock the latest. And my first two hours are spent in reading, writing down my goals. I do write my goals every single morning. Um, and then I start reading and I do very short, I might do a couple of tasks that are not, um, something very short, something very easy, nothing that requires a lot of brain power. <laughs> I might send out a quick email or a quick response, not something that I need to really work on. And then I work out. So I go and train and then I come back and that's when I start working. And then my work continues throughout the day. And then I go to sleep super early, like 7.30, 8 o'clock p.m. So I'm able to wake up refreshed again the next morning. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's interesting. I actually, this morning I got, I get up around, around six as well. And some mornings I try to do something kind of brain dead, but productive. I actually assembled, mm-hmm. I assembled a, an Ikea uh, counter this morning just before I started working, which felt like I actually did something positive and, uh, Give yeah. me that little boost of, um, I think it's dopamine or something, some some chemical to to make me feel like uh, I can take something off the list, which is which is always good, I think. Um, right, exactly. So, <laughs> excuse me. The um, yeah, it would be similar though. You need structure. When just to the point though, when you were working in uh, in the restaurant business and you were there for the nine years, how how did you feel that dynamic of having a boss thinking? Did you think to yourself, God, if I was my own boss, I would still knock it out of the park every day and I wouldn't need anybody sitting over me to micromanage me? And and had has that different been different now that you were your own boss? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, when you, when you have a boss, when you're working for somebody else, I don't think you have, um, you are not developing your discipline. So you're not really internally working. So it is, the discipline is imposed on you. So I feel that you're not really progressing in that sense. Today, every single day, I have to, I have to make myself do it. Not that I have to make myself do it, but I have to be conscious of, Hey, I need to do this. I know why I want to do this. And I I want to do this. But when you have your own boss, I found myself kind of going through motions, meaning, well, I know I have to do it as opposed to today. I say, hey, I know I have to do it, but I want to do it because this is why I have a bigger reason. So I don't think your discipline really develops when um, the structure is imposed on you. Mm, That's very interesting. Yeah, no, I would uh, I would I would concur, I think. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The, the, so time management sounds pretty nailed down and and you're you know you would you say you're highly productive was there do you have a, an approach for for managing your time yeah definitely i don't think there is such a thing as managing there is managing time you can manage time but i think i don't think you can be successful at it uh time just is you can't really manage it so what we need to do to be productive or accomplish what we want to within this set time is to manage ourselves, right? So we need to, my approach is to, I always say top heavy days. So that's my biggest 
biggest thing I do every single day. So after my two hours in the morning, when I work out, I write my goals down. I do reading. I don't know if I said that I do reading in the morning before, before the gym and my goals and everything. Um, after I come back from the gym and I start working, I do my very best to eat that frog first. Like they say, you know, to do get all of my priorities done first thing in the morning. So everything that needs to be done gets put on a list first. So that's how I manage time. And if you do that, if you prioritize the right way, you never feel depleted at the end of the day. Like you worked, 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 but didn't really accomplish anything or didn't get to the most important stuff. Mm. Yeah, no, that's definitely uh, a Good, good tip. It's interesting you're talking about time and you said time is uh, just driving this weekend a lot. I had, um, I listened again to uh, The Power of Now from Eckhart Tolle. Have you, have you read that mm -hmm. book? Yes, yes. He, yes. uh, he talks about time a lot and it's, it is certainly fascinating the way you can, that we are just so conditioned by time and it is really just a human kind of made up idea, really. I think it's just the fact that we go around the sun in a kind of, um, same pattern every day and t we're just bound by time it is crazy how we have a future have a past and it's just all around time it just it, yeah i think for some reason it struck <laughs> me at the weekend what eckhart was doing i was I was trying to do a bit of meditation and not think about the forward or the backwards and just be um you get kind of glimpses of like how crazy we are really when we're we're kind of all yeah. conditioned to it um we are we are all a bit, 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 bit mad in the head, uh, I, I would say. Um, it sounds like you've, you know, achieved an awful lot. I like to ask this question, or it's kind of a new one. What would be your, your kryptonite? You're, you're familiar with what kryptonite is. Yes. <laughs> is there anything that uh, is your blocker that you find difficult to, you know, to overcome? Hmm. Uh, I think it's. For me, it would be it would be the symptom of it would be to stay on track and keep doing what I said I was going to do, which is discipline. But underneath all that is it's easy to lose vision for all of us. And, you know, what that may look like can be different things today and can be something different tomorrow. So just having you know, I can easily kind of slump into the mode where I kind of forget why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. And, um, that happens when you haven't set the new goals, you know, you know, we start out with one goal and it's kind of like we get comfortable and we say, we almost achieved it. We're on the way to achieving it. And we kind of forget, you know what? Um, there is more, there's more and I need to keep going. And if I keep going, it's going to be greater and bigger and more and whatever it is that I want at the time. So it's very easy to lose vision for all of us. And then that can result in us kind of spinning our wheels or wanting to say, do I really need to do this? And when you're an entrepreneur, it's easy to say, well, I don't want to do this today. So I'm just not going to, I'm just going to kick my feet up or go somewhere and just not do the work. So just staying on your goal, just staying on your why and just always keeping it in front of you and having it uh, invigorate you, having it um, kind of not lose that spark. Mm. And do you find as a coach now, you mentioned having, a, do, you, do you have a coach to, to help 
you and that you bounce off yes does that help you keep you focused yeah oh very much so i believe that we cannot as coaches we cannot take people further that we have gone and uh it's imperative to be for me to be working with someone because um there are always new heights that I cannot reach just on my own. Sometimes we need to be pulled the direction that we didn't think we can go. And we all have those moments when I don't care how much you have achieved, I have achieved. We're going to have moments of doubt or we're going to have moments of when we need accountability, where we're going to have moments of, Hey, I don't know. Do I know enough? Am I enough to do this? Or can I do this differently? So the perspective, we always have times when we need perspective. And if you are a coach, I think um, you are just doing your clients and yeah, your clients and yourself disservice. You're just not, not operating from the place of integrity if you're a coach and you don't have a coach. So for that reason, I make sure that I do always have one. Hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's it's imperative, I think. And, you know, even from just having supervision to if you're listening to 20 people a week and they have a lot of challenges, you're, you're taking on so much in your own mind that you need to be able to unload a, a lot of that. So I think it's uh, it's like, I suppose, like counseling in lots of ways as well. Um, True. Yeah, we, we all need a, a safe place where we can work out our fears and our doubts and release our energy and say, hey. Um, you know, I didn't think this was going to go how I wanted it to go. What the hell? And what do I do now? So we all need that safe place. Fear. You mentioned it. Is is it something that, uh, you have, <laughs> have a lot of and, and, uh, do you, um, normally tackle it head on or is it something that that's a blocker for you? Fear. There's always fear. And in my in my life, you know, fear comes up, but I do my very best to substitute it with a notion of freedom. And the way I look at it is there's fear, which is opposite of freedom. And what freedom is to me is just having the courage. And what is courage is to not just not have fear, but to have fear and act anyway, right? To do it anyway, that's courage. And once you reach the level of courage, then you're free. So my, when we talk about core values, one of my first ones is freedom. And if I say to myself, hey, I want to feel freedom, well, I'm not free until I'm courageous to do or say what I want to say. So that's how, how I tackle fear. It's all a conversation with myself and saying, Hey, what choice do I want to make right now? This fear is going to be here until I feel free to act and do what I want to do. Does that make sense? No, no, it does. And it's again, the core value question is, is very important to me. And I interviewed a guy a few months back and he's a coach actually as well. And he, he, he had freedom as one of his core values and he obviously works for himself. Um, was freedom an apparent core value to you when you were working for the corporation, you know, in, in that was, and was that a, a struggle to say, I'm not living to that core value. I'm, was that one of the drivers for getting you potentially away from it as well? Yeah. I don't think I had a language at that time for core values. I knew I had, I had values, but I 
didn't think of it that way. I knew what I wanted to, I was mostly thinking about results. And that's another thing, you know, you can think about results, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get the outcome that you want because you haven't thought of outcomes. So nowadays, um, core values help me, help me, um, help me establish and get to my outcomes rather than results because there are two different things. Results would be, well, I want to make this much money, have this many clients, blah, 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 all the technical stuff, all the things that you can get with that. But what is the outcome? How do you want to feel? What do you want to do with that? Those are outcomes. So back then I didn't have the language for core values. I was just thinking results. What can I accomplish? What can I do? What can I become? But it's funny, like I, I didn't have the language really until I didn't know what mine were till about two or three years ago. But when I'm talking to you through your journey, you know, freedom was obviously a core value that you weren't aware of right from the get go from, mm -hmm. you know, from leaving Georgia to setting up, you know, working, just putting yourself out there that it seemed like that you wanted that freedom to be able to express it. But um, it's funny, I, I did a talk recently and showed a video at the very start of a, a girl uh, running in a running club, crawling over the finish line because she was so broken, she had nothing left. But you could see just in that instant what her core values were, even though she probably has no idea what, what, what they are and probably won't for another 10 years or so. But it's just... Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What do you think it was? What do you think her core value was? It was interesting because there was the, the there was a commentator on the on the race and they were in the fourth fourth kind of division of the San Francisco um cross country running club mm -hmm. so they were not going to be olympic champions or, or anything like that and uh, i think she was out of the four girls in the team she was coming in third um and they mentioned during the race that their coach uh, had started to or was suffering from uh, Lou Lou Gehring's disease I think it's called motor neuron disease over here but it's you know de debilitating disease and she was yeah. you could see she was doing it for a coach so there was complete resilience determination winning as a group teamwork you know just guts just so much of that just jumping out of her but I think all she was probably thinking of at the time I just have to get over the line here and finish it you know but um it's just a it's quite a mo motivational video to show when you're talking about core values and trying to get people thinking of it but uh again that's just me talking about it. i should have a separate show called core values i think i talk about it in every <laughs> single one well they are very very important i know and most people don't have the language around it and they don't know what the, what it is and how much how much it matters and how much of a it's like a compass you know to once you, that's how I look at it. And you know, once you've established the core values and there is a whole process of, I'm sure yeah. you have your own process, mm -hmm. Rob, of, or of establishing them. But once yeah. you have established them, it's so much easier to make, make decisions in our <laughs> lives and also in our businesses. Absolutely. And, and I think it also helps people when they figure out what they are, when they're not so happy with something in their life or be at work or anything that's pissing them Correct. off. Then they say, well, okay, maybe just have a look at what your core values are and realize that what I'm doing is only mapping to one of the five or six. And maybe that's the reason you're not happy. So it, uh, I, I don't think Correct. it's like the, the key to a happy life, but it certainly helps. And, uh, I just, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, it's very interesting every time I talk to somebody about it. Uh, 
gets me gets me going um <laughs> um speaking of going it's an hour 34 so i just have a couple more uh and, and i know it's you know sure it's getting i'm good late. on time um and you know it's always good when we're kind of getting deeper into stuff meditation you mentioned you used to do bits of that or you still do it is there any what 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 how do you approach it what do you do as a as a practice you know i don't meditate in a in a, I guess, traditional way that you think of meditation. My meditation is when I wake up in the morning and I have the, the, um, my, my solitude of being with myself, you know, I don't have to cross my legs and, and get in a pose of mm. meditative pose to meditate. To me, meditation is, it, it really happens throughout the day. Anytime I have time to be with myself, um, I value that time and I take, I make the most of it because for me, just I restore and I regain my energy when I am by myself. I am an introvert, but I can be an extrovert when I need to be. But most of the time, I really recuperate and regenerate when I'm by myself and best ideas hit me when I'm by myself. So that's why I love waking up in the morning and just being by myself and and um, just staying with myself in the silence. So I guess that's what meditation is, but I don't do a traditional way of closing my eyes and, uh, yeah. you know, quieting my mind necessarily. Okay. No, it, uh, it, I, I have ongoing conversations and debates with people about, you know, religion and going to mass and church for me, like I'm not, not religious. I'm not, I'm not, well, I am Catholic, I guess, but I'm not really practicing, but yes. th that's from that's a meditative type thing they do they just don't probably realize it but um right yeah w would you Correct. do you wake off an alarm clock or do you naturally wake up how does that do you find <laughs> something like that Good. yeah that's a funny question because um i recently took a trip to philadelphia where i had to visit family and do things a little bit out of order and, uh, when I came back, it took me a few days to get back on my schedule because I, I was going to sleep like at midnight, 11 o'clock, much later than I normally do. So once my schedule gets kind of messed up again, I do have to use the alarm clock. But other than that, when I am, you know, in sync, when I'm going to sleep at the same time, I don't normally use an alarm clock. I don't need an alarm clock to wake me. And that's the uh, my definition of getting full rest, you know, you want to mm. go to sleep when go to sleep and wake up without an alarm clock, let, let you let your body sleep until it wakes up on its own. And that's how you figure out how much sleep your body really needs. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, I think I, uh, would, would, would tend to agree there. Um, do you have a kind of a, a sweet spot for how much your, your body needs from a sleep perspective? Is that something that's changed over time? Yes. <laughs> no, it hasn't changed ever since I was a child. It's always nine hours. Oh. Nine hours of sleep. Wow. How much is yours? God, I can't, I can't remember the last time. I think I had nine hours at the weekend because I was probably had a lot of alcohol in my system and put me <laughs> asleep. Um, yeah. no, I try to get a, probably try to get a, to bed about 11. So like in 14 minutes time, I'm going to have to jump into bed. But, uh, and then I get up at about 6.30. But what was transformative for me in the last few years was, 
I used to come, you know, home, go to bed maybe at about twelve o'clock, and I'd I'd realize that I was watching TV like from ten thirty till eleven, and it might be a rerun of a Friends episode, and I would I just had this realization: why the hell am I watching something I've seen before? Just go to bed earlier, get up earlier, and now I get up sometimes before six, sometimes around six, and get so much stuff done. Like I I like yes. to journal, I like to write, I like to go to the gym, whatever. Um you know assemble an ikea press uh, just before work so <laughs> that sort of stuff uh is great to and it's it's bright and it just feels fresh and yeah that that's yeah. transformative you're, to me you have like a, a jump over the world you know you yeah you have like hours and hours it's amazing yeah to yourself yeah definitely a great feeling it is up in the morning but i would say seven hours is probably where i'm at uh probably should try and get another one per day and i, I asked somebody and on another episode he had done research into sleep mm-hmm. and uh the question of if i sleep for 12 hours on a saturday will that give me like extra four hours for the rest of the week like you can kind of bank those hours he said no absolutely not no no not at all i was hoping, absolutely not i was hoping that was the case but, another uh, thing is you know um there i used to do night shifts when i was working for that job and pulling sure. restaurant shifts And, um, what I discovered is I can have my nine hours of sleep, but if I sleep from 6am to whatever time it is, you know, 1pm, 2pm in the afternoon, Mm. I can sleep the same amount of hours, but I don't feel refreshed. I feel terrible because Mm. I didn't sleep during the night. I slept during the day. So your Akkadian rhythms get messed up completely so there's a reason why there is a night and there's a day our bodies get the full rest and rejuvenation and our cells uh regenerate uh during certain hours yeah not in the morning hours yeah yeah, yeah. no that's uh that's true i, I think yeah. i heard that one before another one uh one thing that bugs the hell out of me is email um especially working in a corporate environment where i get hundreds of emails every day and try to keep up on top of it but i, I also am a, a, an inbox kind of zero person that i i sometimes can't sleep properly if i know i have a lot of emails in there yes. is that there's there's one side of the coin or the other which side do you fall on yeah i'm on your side rob but i don't like not having emails that are un- not having emails that are unopened it really really bugs me I, I hate notifications and that I haven't looked at and I don't let them accumulate my system for it is you know a lot of people say don't check your email in the morning mm. I do check my email in the morning but I just I have the sense of restraint so if I know it's going to be a long drawn out thing or a negative thing I don't get into it in the morning I do check my um, certain emails in the morning okay. and um, the whole system is for me to knock them out in one sitting so let's say if it's email time for me I'm going to take 30 minutes an hour whatever it is for you and when that time is up I'm done and then I might be in line or I might be I don't know going down the stairs or walking or something so I'm going to use my uh net time tony robbins calls it a no extra time you know you're you're not certainly not driving time but maybe maybe walking time cleaning time something to knock out those emails that you haven't yet opened so have the have the end in mind yeah 
Yeah. No, no, it's good. I, uh, this year I tried to do a challenge every month where I push myself to either stop something or start something or get better at something. And I, January, I was really good. I didn't have any alcohol for the month. Not that I would be drinking it every day or anything. <laughs> so that was a, a big tick. But February, I uh, challenged myself not to read email until 10 a.m. every morning at work. Uh, and I, I think I did it for about 25 well, no, about 75% of the month, which was, wasn't too bad. It's pretty good. Uh, because yeah. before I would have been potentially looking at it five minutes after waking up and you just read a sucker of an email that would stick in your mind until you replied or until you got in. And I, again, I know that's my own problem and I need to control that. But it, it is one of those things that I think a lot of people get caught into the, the wheel, the hamster wheel very quickly of responding and then you know their 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 yeah, quiet time is gone i think that can happen when you don't have an agenda for the morning so mm. like i have an agenda for myself where i wake up and first thing i look at is my goals um as a matter of fact um let me look at it right now so first the very first thing is i open my phone and i have an app where i keep my calendar and everything else and first thing I do is I open it and I list three things I'm grateful for. And every day it can be a different thing. It can be the same thing, but it can, I try to find different things that I'm really grateful for. And then I sit in that moment and I really acknowledge, okay, I'm grateful for this. Why? And I really ponder on it mm. and I move on to the next and the next. And then, then I write down my goals and then I write down what am I committed to being today. So I have the whole process that I go through in the morning, but if you have that gap where you don't have any commitments or anything that you do, of course, instead of that, you're going to open your email and get down the rabbit hole. No. Yeah. Like I agree I, 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 to, to the, to the point though, the fact that I broke that little bit of circ, I suppose wheel of that happening in, in February, I, I don't check email anymore uh, until until like 8 30 or so or, or 8 when i get to the office sometimes so it, it has given me that good bit of time back and it's great because i do um be a bit more selfish for those first couple of hours in the morning to get something of my own you benefit must be. you must be you yeah have to be. um i hope my boss isn't listening to this he'll think i don't do any work anymore um <laughs> uh just a couple more when when uh you think of maybe the most admiration who would you admire the most uh, in maybe in your world uh, in the kind of coaching or restaurateur or, or just in general is there anyone that you you would look up to or are heavily influenced by hmm i actually don't <laughs> i actually don't i always say um that i don't really look up to anyone i can look at other people and certainly learn from them certainly hold them in high regard, certainly admire what they're doing. And there are so many people like that, but I, I've always told myself from the, from the time I was, you know, very, very young that I, I didn't really look up to anyone. I think the whole phrase just turns me off and it's not some egotistical thing for me. Mm -hmm. It just, uh, it comes down, down to self-talk. So the way I talk to myself is I don't look up to this person we are really equals in a way that they have their gifts and I have mine. So on that level, um, I don't really look up to them. But mm. certainly there are people in the industry that I admire their work and I respect them so much. Um, 
in restaurant industry, that would be the first person that comes to mind is uh, Danny Meyer. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, don't you know. Have? How, I, I've heard of him. But I don't know how I know the name. But. Okay, he's a uh, he has Union Square Hospitality Group, who owns Shake Shack and blue smoke and bunch of MoMA, a bunch of restaurants in New York. And what sets him apart is he really has nailed the concept of hospitality, which is what I, um, what I'm really all about. Meaning, you know, hospitality is a spirit and service is a skill. Like when you go to a restaurant, what they do for you, as far as serve you, bring your, bring your food out on time, refill your drinks, be friendly. All of that is service, but hospitality is how you make people feel. Mm. So he has really transcended that culture throughout his entire organization. So that is huge. I really admire him for that. Does he have anything um, in, in Europe? Like, is it just first and MoMA, when you mentioned that, I, I thought I heard that that play that that is that a is that a hotel or just a restaurant oh a Mo, actually moma is a is a um art museum in new york and he has a he has a restaurant in moma okay so hmm. yeah he's and you mentioned one other area i'm fascinated by and i know we're going off on tangents but the the, the self-talk um when i when i i think i talked to a coach or somebody a long time ago about self-talk and kind of acknowledging that voice in your head it, it for me it's like it i have an image of a little devil and he's normally on the right side of my brain or on my shoulder and <laughs> he's he's the one that's you know telling me you shouldn't have done this or shouldn't have done that but also is there to kind of support and help you in in certain ways as well um always interested in people talking a little bit about or, or, or that, that they're aware of what's your relationship with that voice and is it something that you can control or, or your uh your friends with or how does it kind of impact you the voice the little devil yeah well it's a devil for me i don't know what what your image or, or your uh visualization of it mm. is yeah the little the little gremlin i guess we all yeah. have those little gremlins that come up and tell us that we're we're not good enough. We don't know enough. Um, you know, I don't, are you sure you can do this? So yeah. all that, the, the voice of doubt, I guess. Right. Yeah. 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 I think only thing that you can do is really drawn out that voice with the opposite of it. So as soon as that voice comes up in me, um, I look at the opposite information, which are facts, because we have to, we have to really think about the gremlin as it's not really factual. It's not really accurate. It's just the survival mechanism. It's just the keeping, it's just keeping us safe. It just wants us to stay where we are because it's mm. protecting us. Right. Yeah. It's all it is. Mm. So, but is it really protecting us? It's not, I say it's not protecting us. It's actually, causes our more us more harm because if we listen to that voice too much we don't venture out we don't know we don't do what we really need to do to get where we want to go so if you really get technical about it the voice is kind of bs right? <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no it is I and then it's... and then when you think about it that way then you say okay if this is bs what is a fact well 
I, I tell my clients, you need to make a, a, a life accomplishment list or, or list of what, what makes me irresistible in one area or another. You can make a general list. You can make it in a list in your business. What makes you irresistible in your business? What makes you irresistible at the job that you do? What makes you irresistible in your relationship? So whenever those gremlin voices come up, you can look at your list and say, well, this is factual. This is me. This is what I've done. And the voice is BS. It's just keeping me from being who I want to be. So only way to handle it is to draw it out with the truth. Mm. Good insight. I like it. Uh, It's good to hear different. (laughs) uh, It's just a fascinating little thing that we all have, uh, but sometimes it can take over. And I think it's important for people to know that it's okay that that it's there just to to have an approach to uh, to deal with it um so wrap up with the last couple Uh, advice if you were to give somebody advice or what's the best piece of advice that you've been given and that you've you pay forward or 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 even hand out if you you do it in your own coaching if if any Hmm. um in coaching just I don't know if there is a, again, a sky parting moment, a light shining down moment that I've had when somebody gave me advice. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest advice that I give myself, I can look back at my life and say, what do I wish I started earlier, started doing earlier? Mm. And that can be an advice for somebody else to say that start develop, start working on your mind, on your mindset. And I started reading and personal development, I I got exposed to it probably in my late twenties. Um, and I wish I was exposed to it much sooner and I think I would have been much farther ahead. So my biggest advice would be start reading, start, uh, learning from other people and learning where they've have been. So not, not to repeat their lives or not to copy what they're doing, but to develop the level of thinking that you haven't developed yet Mm. so personal development is my number one advice to everyone because it it does create awareness it does create the level of thinking that we don't have right now and more you do it more you realize you need it and more you realize how much you don't know Mm. so it's like this ongoing process and most people don't read most people don't don't even know about it they don't even know um, they don't have the simple awareness mm. for things and reading and listening and constantly developing our minds, um, is what gets us ahead. It's not the school. It's not the textbooks. It's not the college. It's the self-development. Agreed. It's, it's the, the learning. I, the, again, I'll ask you the question in a second, but a book I've just recently written or not written and not, not writing yet, uh, read was called coactive coaching. And it's one of the, fundamental coaching yes. manuals yes yes and Great book. yeah like the the one of the m- most amazing pieces in that is just the simplest thing and i'll actually put it on an instagram after but it's this little circle or cycle of action leads to learning leads to action leads to learning and it just goes around and around forever and yes. it's so simple but it is the you know it's the most impactful little piece of coaching that sticks in my mind or advice that if you can just take action you're going to learn something and then it's 
it's it's it's addictive and you, you you'll want to take more action because you want to learn more and it goes round and ground and i think in addition to that the kind of idea of accountability is key so that you actually take accountability to do it um but if you were to give that's just my insight sorry um yeah no definitely agreed if you were to give a recommendation i know you give one book already is there anyone that you found or any additional one that you found really impactful that uh strike a chord change helped you look at things differently hmm i think uh are you familiar with grant cardone i am not okay um grant cardone has written i believe four books by now he's a sales expert and he is all over internet if you look him up and um biggest one of the biggest books i've read is of his book called 10x rule and basically what he's talking about is taking massive action and when you think you have taken massive action take more so basically 10 times the action that you everything that you're trying to accomplish is going to take 10 times the effort that you think it's going to take Mm. so he really really goes into why and how to take massive action cool it's kind of scary and i can give you another one which is probably my all-time favorite have you heard of brene brown yes okay well her book daring greatly and the sequel is rising strong both are absolutely incredible and uh, she's obviously a researcher who researches vulnerability and shame which is so so important in today's world because we're so numb and we Mm. have such a such a high level of fear around vulnerability and without vulnerability there is no creative process there is no change there is no innovation so that's what she really talks about it's the book is a gold mine daring greatly is the first one yes okay cool um couple of recommendations for me there anna so thank you uh i have to, sure. have to get on to some parallel reading again um <laughs> look we're, we're coming yeah, we're coming up to two hours so it's been spectacularly interesting the last hour or so i think it's just been great just some of the stuff that we're bouncing out there have, have been really uh exciting um thank you you ask good questions oh thank you um if if uh if we could wrap up with one one I like asking the question around success. What what does success look like for you or how how would you even define what success is? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think success is for me, I I feel successful when I'm going after a worthy and desired goal while enjoying the process. That's what success is to me. So I have to be going after something. It doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be small, whatever it is for me, as long as it's worthy. And I have said it because it's something I really want, not something that is imposed on me by society or by my parents or somebody that says this is what I need to be or do, mm-hmm. but something that I really want to do. It is a worthy pursuit and I'm enjoying the heck out of the process. And it's all about the the journey and as opposed to the destination, I guess, as well, isn't it? Yeah, but I think it is about the destination as well. I think destination is sweet. It's sweet to arrive at that destination. But I think the process continues because 
another side of success for me is I also feel successful when I'm progressing. So when I'm moving forward, when I have the sense of, you know what, I've gotten better without that, there is no happiness, there is no success. And, uh, so on another side, su success is a progress and progress is not possible without, uh, having that goal that's required, that requires you to grow. Right. Absolutely. Growth, better, betterness lines up nicely with the theme of the, the podcast. One, 1% better. I would hope there's, I would say so. There's like about 25% uh, tips of betterness in the last uh, two hours. So I, I think, uh, I hope whoever, and hopefully lots of people <laughs> listen, they, they get lots out of it. Just to, to, to wrap up. And I want you to take a minute or two to, to talk about your own uh, you know, your business, how people can get in touch, reach out to you like I did on, on Instagram and LinkedIn and all, all the other platforms. Yeah, definitely. I, you can reach me on any social media platform, mainly on Instagram, which is ANNA underscore D O L C E Anna Dolce. And, uh, I am on there the most active or I'm most active on Instagram and, uh, sure. You can reach me on Twitter and Facebook and, on all the other social platforms. Another way to reach me is anadolce.com, which is my website. It will be up, um, new version of it by the time this airs. And then I wanted to, your listeners, Rob, I wanted to offer them a little special something if you wanted me to. Absolutely. Allow that me would to, be, that would be would awesome. Be, uh, if you go on my website, anadolce.com and go to a coaching section, you can sign up for a free strategy session with me. I have never actually done this. I don't do free strategy sessions or free coaching sessions at all, but I am willing to do that for Rob and your audience. Um, so it will be, it will be a, a simple questionnaire you're going to fill out and it's going to shoot right over to me and I'll be able to get on the phone with you and discuss Anything, whether you're starting a new business, want to take your current business to the next level, find a life partner, get a promotion, go after your dream, I can help you get that aerial view on what stands in your way and how to overcome it. Is that um, that op offer open to me as well? Uh, that that I can absolutely. Actually... <laughs> I, that would <laughs> that would be taking liberties. I'm I'm joking, but um... <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Like that is a brilliant op opportunity for anyone to uh to, to connect in with you on that so anna thanks so much on top of spending the last couple of hours talking about your journey and uh and all the things that are going on in your your world uh thanks for offering that session as well and i hopefully hopefully some people take you up on that and you know it gives subsequent sessions as a result as well but that'd be that'd be great sure thank you for bringing me on and asking great questions uh i don't like to speak this long but it's been a pleasure it's been fun no it has it has been really really enjoyable um thank you so much for for the time i have uh, i'm looking forward to editing the the show because i'll get to hear it all back again and um i uh yeah putting this up on the 28th of july so um i guess anyone listening to it at this point will I'll be at the end so they'll know it's the 28th but uh I will certainly um, I'll start marketing that uh, next week as we build up to, to the 28th. So, uh, yeah, brilliant. Anna, thanks so much. I will, 
we'll look forward to staying in touch and hopefully we'll you know you never know might chat again in in the future yeah definitely rob we'll stay in touch brilliant thanks anna thanks so much thank you thank you so much good evening all right bye-bye 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 Hey folks, you got to the end of another show. Thank you for persisting. I hope you enjoyed it as much as the others. So I'm just going to put a quick shout out for feedback. You can get in touch with me through the site. You can get in touch through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all on the robofthegreen.ie site and you can take it from there. Also, I'd love if you listen to on iTunes, leave a comment, give us a score out of five on the stars that are so much commonplace these days. I would really appreciate that if you did it. Whether it's good or bad, I can certainly take that. We'll, we'll make some improvements as we go. And yeah, I, I'll keep it short. I hope you enjoyed and I look forward to having you back for some more 1% Better podcasts in the future. Thank you and good luck.